You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at vccfarmercity.org. Welcome to church this morning. We're going to continue in what we've been talking about. And uh, I'm going to do a very brief review of last week, just kind of launch us into this morning. So I'm going to hit several verses kind of quick. You can try to keep up if you want to. We're going to start in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Uh, Romans 8, 14 says this, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Um, so our goal in this series is twofold. Number one, to learn how does He lead us. How does God on the inside lead us? And then goal number two, be led. (laughs) Take what we learn and apply it. Make it a lifestyle. Learn to be led by Him in the big things, in the little things, in all the in-between things. And everything Frank was talking about, that's that's Spirit-led life. When He prompts your heart to pray for someone, you stop and take a moment. Pray for someone, you know, be a voice to someone. Or it sounds like there are times he needs you to be an ear for someone. Just listen. Let them know they have value. Let them know they're important. So being led. uh, Verse 16 says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So last week we introduced that is the number one way. The Holy Spirit will lead you, is in that verse. He will bear witness with your spirit. I call that the inward witness. I'm not the only one. I didn't coin that phrase. But the inward witness. It is the witness of the Holy Spirit, but it is in you. It is not external. It's not even in your head. It's in your spirit. It's a witness. But a witness, of course, is not words. A witness is is a knowing Um, It says in verse 6, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Uh, The old old English word for their life is the word quickening. And that's almost a primary description of that witness. It's a quickening. It's a knowing. It's a peace. And many times we know I need to go this direction because I, I just I have a knowing down here. Maybe I can't explain it with my head, but I have a knowing in my heart. I need to go this way. Or maybe when I think about going this way, I have a peace. When I think about the other way, I get unsettled. Um, I have peace to go this direction. It's the primary way he leads us. I've heard it called a red light or a green light on the inside. When you check your heart, you you, you can't necessarily put it in words, but you know. This is the way I'm supposed to go. It's a witness. Um... What I want to look at this morning then is this what I consider the second most common way he will lead you, and it's very similar. This one would be called the inward voice. Your spirit has a voice. And there are times then your spirit will lead you with words. Now, I call it the inward voice because it goes nicely with what I just described as the inward witness. This would likewise be the inward voice. It's not external. I'm not talking about hearing voices. Not not that. It's on the inside in your spirit. It's the voice of your spirit. Your heart will talk to you. Now, an Old Testament phraseology, if that's the right word, a phrase you'll see in the Old Testament is still small voice. And we'll look at that before we're done this morning. But the most common New Testament word For the voice of your human spirit is the word conscience. 
And you're going to see that quite a bit in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul talked about your conscience. He talked about his conscience quite a bit. Let me show you some examples. Romans 9.1. Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So there was his conscience being an inward voice or an inward witness. He says, my conscience is bearing witness with me. All right. This would be the term where inward witness would be a witness of your conscience or the witness of your spirit. Your inward voice would be the voice of your spirit or the voice of your conscience. Let me give you another example. Acts 23 verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, men and brethren... I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, if you remember, I think we looked at this one in a previous message. He was on trial for something he had done by the church leadership. They were calling him on the carpet. And he came in to give defense for himself. And that was part of his defense. He said, guys, I'm following my conscience. I have kept my conscience clean and good. I've done what my conscience led me to do. And to him, that was defense. You want me to defend what I did? I was following my conscience. And to him, that was as valid as about anything else he could set forward. He was following his conscience. Um, Romans 2.15. It says, Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So another verse that points to your conscience as a source of witness for you. It's the inward witness. This is a vital piece when it comes to being led by the Spirit. Um, another piece I can show you, if we go to 1 Timothy 3, you'll see qualifications for leadership in the church. If someone wants to be a deacon in the church, here are qualifications for what it means to be a leader in the church. And starting in verse 8, he says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. And in verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith, how? With the pure conscience. In order to qualify as a leader in the church, you have to have already reached a place of keeping your conscience pure. What's another way of saying that? You've been led by your conscience. And when your conscience led you to go this direction, not that way, you kept your conscience clean, you might say, or you've listened to and followed your conscience. That's the voice of your human spirit. Let me give you another example. In Acts 24, 16, he says, Paul says, This being so, I always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and man. That word strive there means to exercise oneself, to take pains, or to labor. He said, I have worked. I have labored to keep my conscience clean without offense toward God and toward man. He says, I will not allow my conscience to be offended toward God or toward man. Are you seeing that? Why would he say that? Now, I'm not going to build a message on this this morning, but I'll put it out there. Any degree of offense in your conscience between you and God or between you and another person will hinder your conscience. It will hinder your ability to hear him clearly when you're wrapped up under offense 
Now, I'm not teaching on offense this morning, but how many of you figured out by now when a person gets offended over whatever, and, I'm, and it could be valid, what that person did was wrong. They should not have done it. But when you then on the other end allow offense to take a hold, that offense hurts you, not them. How many people did something dumb and should not have done it? And they hurt someone who got offended, but then they go the rest of their life and never even realize they hurt someone. They're not offended. But the person who gets offended, it does damage to them emotionally and can even lead to physical problems because of emotional stress and emotional strain because they're carrying an offense over something and that other person doesn't even know. Now, I don't want to get off on offense this morning, but offense will dull your conscience. It will make your conscience hard to hear. If it goes far enough, it'll make your conscience impossible to hear. You just, you won't hear anymore. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. He, Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. And I do believe that's the day we're living in. Some will depart from the faith. And how are they departing from the faith? They're giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So they're being deceived. There's a simple way to say it. They're buying into lies. And they're being deceived, and it's even causing them to stumble and depart from the faith. But look at the next verse. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, this is an interesting verse. How did they get to a place where their conscience was seared as if with an iron? We'll leave it in context. They bought into lies and deceiving doctrines. And they got off. And getting off seared their conscience. Now, look at the big picture. How did their conscience get seared? Because they didn't listen to it. Their conscience was telling them truth. They had to override their conscience to buy the lie. And when they bought the lie and began to follow the deception, it actually dulled their conscience. Because they didn't listen to it. They didn't heed their conscience. If you ignore your conscience long enough, it'll stop. I want to say it'll stop bothering you. That's not actually accurate. You'll get to where you don't hear it anymore. When you ignore your conscience, it it dulls. And you can get to where you don't hear it anymore. Some people in in a sin, their conscience was screaming at them, don't do that. But if they ignore that conscience long enough, that sin will get easier and easier and easier. Why? They're dulling their conscience by not heeding it. Um, have you ever known someone, he talks about searing, like makes me think of the word calloused. Have you ever known someone, and many of lifelong coffee drinkers um, might fall in this category. Have you known someone who's been drinking coffee for so many years that they get to a point where they can take that coffee right out of the pot? It could be just a degree short of boiling hot, and they can take that hot coffee and just drink it like water. You know, have you known people like that? I see a lot of heads going, yep, yep, yep. I know someone like that, yep. They didn't get that way overnight. There was a day where that hot hot coffee would have burnt their lips, burnt their tongue, burnt everything it touched, and they would have screamed, ow, or 
maybe something else. All right. No. But how did they get to the point then where they can take that hot coffee and just chug it? They kept going back to it. And they just kept putting that hot stuff in and putting and pushing the barrier and pushing the barrier. And over time, they calloused their throat. And all of the, in the tongue, in the throat, all of the sensors to, to heat dulled. They seared the throat. He says we do the same thing to our conscience. But how do you do that to a conscience? By not listening to it. By ignoring it. By just, even though the conscience is saying, no, don't do it, you just keep doing it anyway. Or it could be the other way around. Your conscience is saying, do this, and you keep saying no. You ignore your conscience long enough, you will dull it, just like that calloused throat. It'll be the point where, just like they don't feel the hot anymore, you won't hear your conscience anymore. Mm. It's really hard to be led by God when you can't hear your conscience, when you can't hear the voice of your spirit. You go down that path far enough, it will be as if there is no God. You sure don't hear anything. Like, conscience is so dulled, you'll live life as if he didn't even exist. That is a really bad thing. <laughs> Why? Because conscience is what separates for you right from wrong. Direction you need from him. It's going to come through your conscience. So we need our conscience to be, what's the opposite of calloused and dull? <laughs> Sensitive. We need our conscience to be sensitive to him. And we need to be sensitive to our conscience. Mm. I want to show you a verse in 1 John 3. Uh, 1 John 3, verse 18, John says, he says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. He says, don't just say lovely words. Have lovely actions to back up your lovely words. Don't just say, I love you. Do something demonstrate your love. But look at the next verse. And by this, we know that we are of the truth. We shall assure our hearts before him. That's still a little King Jamesy. What's it mean to assure your heart? Um, Weymouth translation says satisfy. You satisfy your heart. Uh, the Amplified says reassure, quiet, or pacify your heart. Um, the Strong's Concordance says, listen to your heart. It says, obey, yield to, comply with your heart. So it all goes together. How do you assure or satisfy your conscience? When you listen to it, you comply with it, you yield to it, when you obey your conscience. That's how you assure it. And what's that painting a picture of? You're led by it. When your conscience leads you a direction, you follow. When your conscience says, no, don't go there, you stop. That's your conscience. And that's leading you. He says then in verse 20, I'm still in the same passage. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, kind of a twofold point. First point. It is your heart that will condemn you when you're going the wrong direction. Not God. He's not, he doesn't condemn. He will convict you. That's different. He won't condemn you. 
God will simply reveal truth to you and he'll convict you if you went the wrong way. He'll say, no, that was wrong. You went the wrong way. Condemnation's heavier. Condemnation is beating you up over it. Not letting you hear the end of it. When someone does something wrong, it's the heart that then just wants to pound you over it. And even after you recognize that was wrong, I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? Heart will keep going. That's why he said in that verse, he said, now God's greater in your heart. Now he can help you overcome that part. But it is your heart that'll just beat you up over what you did or didn't do. Not God. Now the devil likes to help on that. <laughs> but not God. It's your heart that will condemn you. Now, why does this become a factor in today's message? What if you can't hear your heart anymore because you've so dulled it? Are you seeing it? See, it's your heart that will call you on the carpet. So we don't want to dull our conscience. We want to yield to it. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. So that's all connected. But when you're following your conscience and you're listening and you're sensitive and you're doing what your conscience leads you to do, you're going to fall right in that back part of the verse. Um, your conscience is going to lead you to keep His commandments and do things pleasing in His sight. And when you're in that place, your heart has nothing to condemn you over because you've been following your heart. And so when you come into God's presence <laughs> and your heart's not condemning you over nothing because you've been listening... You, as it were, you walk right into the presence of God with confidence. Why? I've not been doing anything wrong. And you come in boldly and you get prayers answered. What's the other side of that coin? You've not been listening to your conscience. You've been doing things you shouldn't or not doing the things you should. And your conscience is condemning you over it. And then when you come into God's presence, you have this awareness. I've not been doing right. Because your heart's beating you up over it. And so you don't come into his presence with confidence. There's no skip in your step. You might be slouching, as it were, you know, kind of mopey because you know. I've not been doing everything right. And then what's the implication? It's going to hinder your prayer life. And the things you're asking of him, not guaranteed. Why? Not living right. But what's the definition of living right? You're listening to your heart. You're being led by your conscience. You're following those things. Okay, we cannot afford to have a dull conscience. We have to listen to our conscience. We have to follow our conscience. Like Paul said, we strive to maintain a conscience without any offense toward God or man. We keep it clean. We keep it pure. We have to be able to hear. Now let me say this. <laughs> This may not seem like good news, but we need to know. The voice of your human spirit, the voice of your conscience, is not loud. It's not authoritative. It's different. Don't confuse that with the voice of the Holy Spirit. Should you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, that can be loud, and that will likely be authoritative. Um... But that's different from the voice of your own heart. 
The voice of your conscience is not loud. Um, it's quiet. It's small. It's easily missed. Um, I told you we'd go here. We're going to go to 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. This was when Elijah had just had the experience on Mount Carmel where the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Um, they had that in Sunday school a couple weeks ago. It was awesome. But uh, this had just happened, and God had answered by fire. And the whole nation saw, uh, God is the one true God. And they rounded up all the false prophets of Baal, and it was a bloody day. A lot of prophets died that day. Well, those were all Queen Jezebel's prophets, and she was not happy about it. She made it known she was not happy about it, and just call the spade a spade. That mighty man of God prophet who just won the showdown on Mount Carmel turned and ran for his life because the queen wanted him dead. He was a man. He was strong in one moment, running for his life the next. <laughs> I, I love him. I can't point any fingers. <laughs> so we pick it up then, First Kings 19, verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And he really thought, I'm the only one left. All the other prophets are dead. It's just me. He said, I alone am left. I lost my place. There it is. And they seek to take my life. They're trying to kill me too. Now, you read on in the passage, that wasn't true. He told them, he said, I got a bunch more. You're not the only one. But look what he said here in verse 11. He said, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. You would think when God passes by and the earth begins to shake and it says rocks broke apart, you would think, ooh, that's God. And he's saying, no, God wasn't in that. Just because something is loud and spectacular does not automatically mean it's God. I'll throw this out there. Just because something is spiritual and real doesn't mean it's God. He's not the only spirit running around doing stuff in the earth today. Just throwing that out there. Keep reading the verse. After the wind, an earthquake. Now surely God's in the earthquake, right? Dig out your insurance policy and look it up. If an earthquake happens, the insurance company says that is an act of God. They must be right, right? What's he say? But the Lord was not in the earthquake. No, it wasn't him. Verse 12, after the earthquake, a fire. Now certainly that's God. Both Deuteronomy and the book of Hebrews say that God is a consuming fire. So this must be him, right? But the Lord was not in the fire. So he was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. All of those are external things. They're outside things that are circumstantial. But keep reading. After the fire, a still small voice. 
God was in the still, small voice. His leading on the inside of you is often a still, small voice. And I know I'm whispering. I apologize to those in the back. But it's not loud. What's that mean? It's easily missed. Why? The world we live in is loud. We tend to be loud. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone. Maybe we've all been like this a time or two. I don't know. But how many people, as soon as they wake up in the morning, they're turning something on? Radio, music, TV, something. But I mean, the minute they crawl out of bed, they're turning noise on. Distraction. And I don't want to show of hands. How many people sleep with noise at night? Can't even calm down and go to sleep without noise. Now, maybe it's just a box fan, but some people leave the TV on all night long or a radio. And again, I don't want to show of hands. I'm not asking. But this world is full of noise. And we have to be able to quiet everything out. Turn down all the noise and listen. Because the noise we need to hear on the inside is not loud. It is still. It is small. It is quiet. And many times to hear clearly, we got to get it quiet around us so that we can hear. But it is internal. It is not external. So I'll ask this question then. We're learning to listen, to hear the voice of our conscience. How then do we separate the voice of our heart, our conscience, with the voice of our head? How do you separate soul from spirit? Trust me, volumes and classes could be taught on separating soul from spirit. But let's at least take, an ex- and I want to say face value, I don't know. Let's take a stab at it. Um, three times in the book of Hebrews, Paul quotes Isaiah. We looked at several of them. Remember when he said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not callous your heart. Do not dull your heart. But in Hebrews 4, verse 12, then he says this, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of, that's what we're looking for, soul and spirit. They can be divided. Um, Soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. So he compares soul and spirit to joints and marrow. How many of you can separate your joints from your marrow? What's that tell me? Not easily. How many of you can sit down? And if I, if I focus real hard on my forearm, I can feel the difference between my bone and the marrow inside of it. No. No. So that tells me on one hand, soul and spirit are very intertwined. They're not easy to distinguish. It can be a challenge. But is it doable? In the same verse, he says, yes. But what's it take? The Word of God is living and powerful. The Word of God helps you separate soul from spirit. Are you with me? I've said this before. I say this all the time. I say it every chance I get. You're probably tired of hearing it by now. (laughs) But it's the Word of God that helps you separate right from wrong, separate soul from spirit. It's your safeguard. 
When you're hearing something on the inside, the Word of God is your safeguard to know that that's the right voice or not. It's the Word of God. Um, God's Word will always agree. His written Word will always agree with His spoken Word. If you think you're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, or if you think you're hearing the voice of your human spirit, it will never be contrary to God's written Word. They'll always agree. It's the same God. And so the written Word becomes your safeguard. The more time you spend in the written Word, the easier it will be to recognize when God's trying to say something to you. Same voice. Same type of voice. It's your, your exposure to the written Word. Hmm. Here's an example, and it's uh, hopefully it's an out there example, but let's say you find yourself in a tough situation with no way out. Maybe you're in a conversation with someone, or you're in a situation where there is just there does not seem to be a good way out of this. I'm really in a pickle, as it were, and you have this temptation on the inside. If I just tell a little lie right now, I can get out of this. I can diffuse the situation. And it's not a bad lie. It's just a white lie. Our culture wants to convince us that there are good lies and bad lies. And so it's not a bad lie. It's just a good little lie that will get me out of this situation and will diffuse the, the whole situation because the truth would hurt them. They can't handle the truth. So I've got to be easy on them and I'll be gentle and just tell this little lie. And we can work and spin and try to present that in the best light possible. Unless you know the written word of God. Unless you know that your Heavenly Father is incapable of lying and has told you there is never any right way or right time to tell a lie. In fact, what did Jesus say? He said Satan is the father of lies and he's the creator of it. He invented the lie. He invented deception. There is none in God. And he did not create it. The devil did that. And when we take part in a lie of any fashion or form, that's not God. Someone else is leading you to do that. So that's the situation. Hopefully you're never tempted to do that. But that's the situation where your knowledge of the written word helps you understand real quick, as tempting as this may be, that is not God leading me. See, in any number of situations like that, um, how many of you have ever watched an impersonator? Usually it's comedians that do this, but a comedian that impersonates maybe another actor or someone else. All right. Um, if they're good at it, then you will watch that impersonation and you'll go, ah, oh, I know exactly who they're impersonating. I know who, maybe they're doing uh, you know, a president, or maybe they're doing another actor, or something, but they're doing an impersonation, and if they're good, you're going, I know exactly who, the mannerisms are all right, they're using the right words, the right phrases, I said, they, they, just, they are spot on, I know exactly who they're doing, and you may think they are the best ever, when does it become real that it's an impersonation, when you put them right next to the original? No matter how good they are at impersonating, they're still not as good as the real thing. And the closer you get to the actual original, the more obvious it becomes that that's just an impersonation. Right? Same thing's true here. The more you get to know the written word of God, the more obvious an impersonation becomes. 
And the devil does like to try and impersonate God to you. He's been called an angel of light. And he wants you to think he's God. And he wants to lead you. But the closer you get to the real thing, the more the fake becomes very obvious to you. Does that make sense? So then what's he say? He says back to verse 12, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it's implied, and the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The more you have a foundation in the word of God, the more you'll even be able to separate thoughts and intents. What are those thoughts going on on the inside of you? You'll be able to separate which ones are which. The intentions. Now, is that something my heart's intending to do, or is that really flesh? Or is that my soul? See, it's the Word of God that helps us to separate all those things. But now, what's that tell us right up front? And I think I've said this before, too, but it bears repetition. One thing we conclude about being led by the Spirit, it's work. It takes work. It's not going to happen just because you want to. I want to be led by God, so I, I hope it happens. No, nope. you're going to have to work at it. If nothing else, spending time in the Word of God every day, becoming familiar with God through His written Word as step one to get to know Him on any other level. Getting to know His written Word. Um, it's going to take diligence. It's going to take faithfulness. It's going to take faith. Just trusting Him. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Hebrews 11.6. says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must, number one, believe that He is. But number two, you must believe that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Take some diligence on our part. But not only diligently seeking Him, but believing. And He's going to reward me for this. He's a rewarder. And He is. That's His nature. But He rewards the diligent. All of it goes together. How many of you, I'm speaking mostly to the married in the room, the couples. How many of you got to know your spouse, got familiar with your spouse, fell in love with your spouse, decided to, to spend the rest of your life with your spouse, but never spend any time with them. No one. It doesn't work that way. You spent lots of time with them. In fact, in those early stages of getting to know them, that's all you wanted to do. You just you thought about them all the time. And you wanted to spend all your free time with them. You may, may or may not know this. All of your other close friends got really tired of hearing about that person. That on some level took you away from them. Because like, all you could think about was, was she's this or he's that. No, 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 no. Infatuation. But what happened? That investment of time is what laid a foundation for the relationship. It's no different with you and God. To grow in a relationship with Him it's going to take time. An investment of time. A diligence of time. Are you with me? But He will reward. He will reward your diligence. Now let me say this. No matter where you are in your walk with Him, if you've been, you're just getting started and you're learning to follow Him and to recognize His leading on the inside, 
or if you've been following him for years and years and years and you're getting really good at it or you, you wherever you may be anywhere in your path things to always remember number one it's growth it's something we grow in it's something you continue to grow in and get better at over the course of your life and no matter where you are no matter how far you've come you can still keep getting better we, it's something we continually grow at. But I really want to say this to those that are just starting out. I'm learning to hear His voice. I'm learning to follow Him. Recognize He always starts you out with baby steps. When you're first learning to follow God and to recognize His voice, to hear the voice of your own conscience and to follow Him, He will never start you out with, okay, I want you to sell everything you have, turn all your assets to liquid, and then invest in this risky proposition over here because it's going to have a huge return and I'm going to bless you. No! He will not start you off with that. Just recognize that's not him. He won't start me with that. He always starts with baby steps. When you first start learning to follow him, it will almost always be something as simple as yes, no. Do I go this way? He'll give you yes, no. Should I do this or not do this? He'll give you a yes, no. He'll always start simple. Why? So you can learn to recognize it'll be a simple thing that even if you make the wrong choice, then it will become clear and obvious, oh, I made the wrong choice. He was leading me to do this. Why? So you can learn from it. He will always lead you in simple baby steps that you can learn from as you're learning to recognize His voice. Now, you get down in your walk with Him some, and you're learning to recognize His voice because you've invested time and you've been diligent, then He'll start dropping some bigger things. But it, it won't be so hard for you because you've, you've learned to trust. You've learned to follow. And it wouldn't surprise me if He doesn't start giving you even bigger... I've heard lots of stories of even financial advice where He says, do this, don't do that. I, I, I sometimes get my stories mixed up, so I better not go there. But I've, I've heard... So, I want to say Letourneau, that's the wrong name. It was a story I heard of a guy who was a businessman. He wasn't a preacher. He was a businessman. And it seemed like everything he invested in made money. He was that guy. People would come to him with projects all the time, and he would either invest or not invest in their business proposition. And it seemed like everyone he invested in made money. And they finally asked him about it. And he says, every time someone comes to me with a proposition, I go into my prayer closet, and I seek the Lord. And I will not move without his direction. If he tells me to go, I'll invest. If he tells me no, I don't. And if I've not heard from him, I do nothing. And the Lord prospered him and then used him to invest mightily in the kingdom. But learning to be led, he didn't start there. You'll start with something small. I want to give you a biblical example of this. We're going to go back to 1 Samuel 16. Um, this is after King Saul had fallen. And now we're looking for a new king. And so the Lord's sending Samuel to go anoint David. We, we all know this story in hindsight. We've read this story many times, I'm sure. But in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So there's the context. He's done with Saul. He's going to anoint the new king who will be next in line. And uh, did Samuel know when he was filling oil in his horn who he was going to anoint? No, he didn't. 
He didn't know which son. Had God given him the entire puzzle, every piece, and he knew the whole picture? No. He had just enough information to take the next step. He said, okay, I'm going to be anointing somebody to be king, so I need to put oil in my, my horn. That's how they did it. So he knows to get the oil in there and get ready, and he knows where to go. I'm heading to Jesse's house, and I don't know which one, but I have enough information to take the next step. This is normal in how God leads his children. This is a situation we all need to get very comfortable in. He'll give you enough information to take the step in front of you. But he will not necessarily paint the whole picture. He will not necessarily tell you step two, three, and four or what the end looks like. He will sometimes bait you. He'll give you enough of a picture to know there's something really good coming. And I've seen a glimpse of it. But he won't show you every step. Why? Back to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He requires us to trust him. If you trust him, you don't need every piece. You just take the step in front of you. Now, Lord, I don't know what my next step is. I'm not sure where all this is going, but I trust you. Let's go. That's faith. That's faith. He gave us enough to take the step, so we take that step. And we just trust. When it's time to take the next step, I'll know what I need to know. And he'll give me the direction I need, and I'll take the next step. That's what a life of faith looks like. So Samuel's headed, verse 2. Now, there was a little bit of a politics he had to deal with. He says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. Like King Saul was still alive, and he was still on the throne. So he still had power. He still had army. He had a temper. I want to say he had his demons. I don't know if that was just figurative. Anyway, um, the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you'll anoint for me the one I name. There's that same picture. I've given you enough information. Do this and this. Now go. When you get there, I'll give you the next step. All right? That, that's, how, that's how God works. Um, verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said. Went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming. Wrong time of year. Uh, in that day, the prophets kind of did a circuit. And they would go to different places at different seasons and they would show up at different times of year and whether it be planting or harvest or different things well he's showing up at the wrong time and they're all kind of thinking uh oh <laughs> why are you here this is not the right time is someone in trouble they're just all defaulting to that this is not a good thing and they're going did you come peaceably <laughs> so in verse 5 he says peaceably I've come to sacrifice to the Lord sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice gotta get the right people there and so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab this is uh, Jesse's oldest boy. And many times, in, especially in Jewish culture, there was a special honor on the firstborn. And I'm sure he was tall, dark, and handsome. He was probably a strapping young man, you know, chip off of Jesse's shoulder. I don't know. But, you know, he looked like a good choice. And notice, that's what Samuel is looking at. Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me, is before him. He's, he's looking at Eliab going, ah, oh, this is him. Poor Eliab. Um, 
Samuel is wrong. And I think you can, if, you, if you've read this or if you're listening to my tone, you realize Samuel's wrong. It's not Eliab. Now, I'm not pointing fingers at Samuel. We've all done stuff like this. But what's Samuel doing? He's looking on the outside. He's, he's taking in input from the external senses, what he can see and what he's reasoning in his mind. This is the firstborn. Those are the special ones. This has got to be the one God's going to anoint. He's wrong um, because he's looking on the outside. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So in order to properly follow, we can't just look at outward things. I'm not saying don't look at outward things. I'm saying don't be led by outward things. It's okay to look at the outward things. You have a brain and God expects you to use it. It's a smart brain. You're smarter than you think you are. But don't be led by that. Listen for the leading on the inside. I could get off on a tangent here if I wanted to. This is really one of the big reasons why he told us, don't judge your brother. Don't judge your sister. Why? Because you can't see their heart. You may be looking at the outside and even accurately seeing oh, what they did was wrong. Okay, what they did was wrong. Not disagreeing. But what you cannot see is what went on in the inside of him. You don't know what their heart was. You don't know where their heart was. You don't know what God was whispering to them. You don't know what the devil was whispering to them. You don't know how their day just went. You don't know how work went. You don't know who's been yelling at them. You don't know what their history is. You don't know what their childhood experience was. I could go pretty deep. All that to say, all these things are going on and they are all factors to what's going on in a person's heart that we have no way of seeing. And yet God, the righteous judge, takes all of that into account. He is a righteous, a fair judge. And so, now, we can judge fruit. We know what they did is wrong. That may be clear. We have scripture. But we can't judge the heart. We can't see the heart. So he says, don't judge the, per the person. He says, you leave that to me. Is that... Is that clear? We can't see the heart. So verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab, this is number two son, passed him before Samuel. And Samuel said, nope, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Samuel was a smart cookie. And he caught on real quick. He quit looking. And he now he's listening. The second one comes along. And there's none of this. Well, surely this is him. No, no, he got on. He caught on real quick. He's like, nope, not him. Why? He didn't hear the leading. Lord told you, I'll show you which one. And now he's like, okay, I'm just waiting. Uh, next. <laughs> nope, not that one. Next. Wait, he's figured it out real quick. Are you seeing? Uh, verse 10. Well, verse 9, then he made Shammah pass by. Verse 10, then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, Lord has not chosen these. See, now he knows. I'm waiting for a leading. Um... So verse 11, Samuel says to Jesse, is this all you got? Are all the young men here? Jesse says, well, there does remain yet the youngest, and he's out keeping the sheep. Samuel 
Samuel, see, Samuel knew it had to be a son. And he knew it wasn't even the one standing before him. So he's like, you got any more? He says, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. Now, I don't think that was literal. I don't think he made everybody stand for two or three hours while David comes hurrying home. I don't. What that means is there was a whole ceremony. Remember, there was a sacrifice he made. That they're usually, we're probably going to have a banquet and all this stuff going on. And basically he's saying, uh, we're on hold. This ceremony will not proceed until you get your last son here. Now, go get him. I think that's probably what was going on. Just me thinking. There is, there is a teaching among some of the rabbis that says that uh, Jesse did that on purpose. That they wouldn't think the youngest son was really all that valuable and that he kind of had put him out with the sheep on purpose. I don't know if there's merit to that or not. It's an interesting concept. Didn't matter. God knew who he wanted. So, verse 12 so he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ready with bright eyes. Man, he was good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Now what does Samuel have? A leading, a quickening. Now he knows which one. Verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and left. <laughs> I don't know if they finished the sacrifice. I don't know if they ate any meals. All it says is he got up and said, all right, I'm done. I'm going home. Did what I came for. I, I, it almost paints that picture, doesn't it? He had to present this whole, we're going to do a sacrifice. It's not bad. And make sure Jesse's here. Hey, bring all your boys, you know. But then once he found what he wanted, oh, and by the way, uh, David, you're the next king of Israel. Literally pours oil on his head, says, you're the next king of Israel. Holy Spirit descends upon him and anoints him. And Samuel says, all right, I'm done. See ya. <laughs> Off he goes. That's really what it looks like. Left them all standing there. I got to get out of here before Saul finds out what I just did. <laughs> you know, got kind of rough for David for a while there. I shut my notes off. So anyway, I'll say it again. God gave us a brain and he does expect you to use it. But don't be led by it. What do you need? You need a leading. I've looked at this verse several times. Let's do it again. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, but don't lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Look to Him. Listen for Him. And He will direct your path. He's on the inside, not the outside. So, I'm going to close this this morning. But let, let's say this. Let's say you're in a situation and you really do need to hear from Him. Uh, common situations I've seen lately. There's been a lot of job changing lately. Not necessarily here, but just... In general, I've seen a lot of job changing going on. So maybe you're in a situation where you're thinking, Lord, are you leading me to get a different job? Am I supposed to leave or stay? If you're leading me to leave, where am I supposed to go? All right. Maybe you're looking for a vehicle. I've been in that boat recently. And you're like, Lord, you've got to lead me to the right vehicle. The market's crazy right now. Supply and demand is all messed up. Prices are crazy right now, Lord. I need you to lead me to the right one. Or maybe it's some other situation, whatever the case may be. And you're like, Lord, I need direction. So what does that look like? First and foremost, you start in your prayer closet. And you're saying, now, Lord, I trust you to lead me. I, I know that you'll help me, and I'm looking for your leading on the inside, whether it be a quickening, a still small voice, or the inward witness, but I'm looking for your lead. Now, 
in the meantime, you have a brain. So what do you do? Begin to look a little bit. Maybe you're looking for a job. Well, what's out there? Lord, am I supposed to be doing something? And you start looking across the market wherever you go to see what's happening in your field, your line of work. Is there anything going on? Does anything jump off the page at you? Maybe it's the car. Don't just sit in your closet. See what cars are out there. Shop around a little bit. This is the part where he gave you a brain and it's okay to use it. Do some research. Make some phone calls. Get on the internet. Look around a little bit. Now, you're researching, but what's the bottom line? I'm still looking for a leading. I still need to know which one, and he's going to lead me to the right one. So maybe you're looking at the jobs, and all of a sudden this one job comes along that, wow, the job description is better than what I do now. And sure enough, the pay's better. That must be the one God's led me to this. So I should take that job. Is that the right way? If you're led by the salary... You're being led by money. You don't need a higher salary. You need a quickening. You need a leading. Same with the car. Maybe you come across a car where, oh, can you believe it? This one's under market value. They've got this one priced right. Oh, this is the price I need for a car. This must be the one. I'll take it. Maybe, maybe not. It could be. He's led you to the right price because he's blessing your budget. It could also be that they know that car's got a problem and they're trying to get it off the lot as fast as possible before anything else happens because they know it's a lemon. How do you tell? You need a leading. We don't, we're not led by price. We're not led by salary. We're not led by money. We're led by the Holy Spirit. So use your brain. Do your research. But then after all the research, you still have to step back and look on the inside. Now, God, which one? I need a leading. And I'll say this, a lack of leading is not a leading. If he's telling you to turn right, turn right. If he's telling you to turn left, turn left. If you're not hearing the leading, that does not mean dealer's choice. It's up to you. Make yourself happy. No. If you don't have a leading, then what do you need? You still need a leading. So you're going to have to be, oh, it's that ugly word. It's not, but we call it patient. Spend some time before him. Wait on the Lord. Make sure you're getting quiet. Turn some of the noise down. I've been in this point before. I've actually reached a point where I just had to stop, get off the Internet, put all my research on the back burner, and just stop. Shut the mind down and say, now, Lord, I'm just going to spend some time with you. And just get quiet. And just maybe worship him. Just spend some time. And be patient. Because a lack of leading is not a leading. I heard a preacher say it this, one, this way one time. He said, I don't need a reason to not do something. I need a reason to do something. And if I don't have the leading, I'm not ready to act. Not ready to move. Why? I need a leading. Does that make sense? Wait for a leading, whether it be inward witness or whether it be inward voice. But when the leading comes, follow it. Don't ignore your conscience. Amen.